So we've been a church for since 1975. Let me know the first member in mission we sent out. Anybody know? Anybody know? Bobby? Linda. Used to be UC. Her name got changed to Phillips when she married this guy named Harvey. And they're here with us today with their daughter, Michelle. And so they're in the back. So take a... Take, they're, they're currently serving in Hong Kong. So Linda just sort of, to me, just represents a, a, a tradition of this church. I didn't start. It was started by those that founded it of being concerned about and sending and supporting uh, people as they go out into the world. And so Linda and Harvey, they're serving in Hong Kong uh, currently. So I'm a little nervous today. I'm not used to speaking to so many people. You know, it's like, what's ha- what happened today? So many people showed up. And if you're watching uh, online, uh, we'll be having communion today. So make sure you have some elements bread and juice, so you can join us. Uh, Now, Lord willing, next week we'll return. We've been doing Christmas stuff, and then uh, next week we'll return to our series in 1 Peter. But today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, and we're going to focus today on the Lord's Supper, or communion. Now, this is the first Sunday and the first communion of the new year. A new year uh, symbolizes a new beginning, a a fresh start, fresh opportunities. Maybe some here have made some New Year's resolutions. Anyone want to share a New Year's resolution? No hands? Okay, that's fine. Myself, I've resolved, as usual, it's it's a yearly thing. Uh, to eat less and exercise more. I don't, I don't have any other desires and goals in my life. Uh, eat less, exercise more. I'm not sure why, I, uh, why we feel it necessary to wait till January 1st to make uh, the needed changes in our lives. Uh, what's wrong with June 22nd? Random, random day. Well, it just doesn't have the same symbolism as January 1st. But unfortunately, it's only a symbol. There's no real power in the new year. Whether I eat less and exercise more has little to do with it being January 1st or 2nd. The new year could really fall on any date, right? In fact, the Chinese, the Thai, the Jews, and others have a different uh, New Year's date. And there's no real difference between December 31st and January 1st, except we need to remember to write 2022, which uh, this morning I corrected, the, I noticed that the, the PowerPoint said January 2nd, 2021. I go, oh, I even forgot that. And probably uh, another change, maybe there are some new laws that come into effect today. Don't tell me about them because I don't want to hear them. Ignorance is bliss, right? But for the most part, the new year is only symbolic. However, symbols can be good. Symbols can inspire. I hope the new year inspires me to lose a significant amount of weight. Now, like the new year, the Lord's Supper in some ways is symbolic. We use symbols, right? Uh, Bread and juice for us to, to represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. At Bridges, we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday 
of every month. And this is fairly common among Protestant churches. Why the first Sunday? Why once a month? Probably because of tradition more than anything else. So yes, communion is symbolic. Yes, we celebrate it based on tradition. But is that all it is? Is it like the new year, only symbolic? Is it only meant to inspire us once a month uh, to be better Christians, to live better Christian lives? What is the meaning and purpose of the Lord's Supper? Well, this morning, as we start this new year, which will be the first of at least 12 communion times together, there may be others at different times, different occasions, I thought it appropriate to try and answer some of these questions. Because even though we celebrate uh, every month, it's usually just sort of tagged on at the end of the service. We preach about something else. We probably sing about different things. But, but it is a sacrament. It's a sacred act with meaning and value and power, and purpose. And so my hope is today that this message will help us throughout the year as we, once a month, share in the Lord's Supper together. If you've been in a church very long, you know that the main passage we turn to for communion is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. Those are the verses we use. And we uh, will look at those shortly. But I want us to see the larger context. So today, we'll look at what comes before and after these standard verses. Beginning in verse 17, the Apostle Paul is teaching the church, the church in Corinth, about the Lord's Supper. Why? Because, as we'll see, they've been partaking of it in an unworthy manner. Paul's words. And so Paul begins with a rebuke for abusing the Lord's Supper. Paul's desire is to correct this, the church's abuses. He begins in verses 17 through 22 with a description of the, uh, of the abuse and a scathing, scathing rebuke for it. Let me read it. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Clearly, the church in Corinth was not handling the Lord's Supper properly. The problem was so bad that Paul suggests that their meetings are not for the better, but for the worse. It'd be better if you guys just didn't do this at all. So what's going on? Well, since communion today, the Lord's Supper, is usually in the context of a worship service... It is for us, again, 12 times a year, in the sanctuary. It's hard for us to visualize what Paul's writing about, so we need some context. The early church had developed a tradition connected with uh, the observance of the Lord's Supper. They had a meal that they called a, a love feast. 
Each member brought what he or she uh, was able to share. The resources were, were then pooled together, and the whole church sat down to a common meal. Uh, this would be very similar to a potluck, or as it's been called, a multiple-choice dinner, right? This love feast was a picture of the oneness they shared in Christ. It was a way of creating and developing real Christian fellowship in the church. Then in connection with the meal, the love feast, the Lord's Supper was also celebrated. And this was natural. Uh, Remember Christ, at the Last Supper, he'd instituted the Lord's Supper at the close of the Jewish Passover meal. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So the early church continued the tradition started by Jesus of having a meal and celebrating the Lord's Supper together. But what had started as a good thing had gone very bad. Several, several things had happened in the church to take away the love from the love feast. And Paul rebuked them strongly. There were several problems. When they met, instead of being one family, they divided up into separate groups or factions. These groups seemed to be divided along social lines, maybe with the haves and the have-nots. Because Paul also mentions how some members kept to themselves rather than sharing their food and having fellowship with those who had less. Also, there were some people who were having so much to drink that they were becoming drunk. It's in this atmosphere where sharing had been forgotten, the church tried to celebrate the sacrifice God made in sharing His Son with us for the payment of our sins. And it was a mockery. And Paul brings the hammer down when he says, let me read it again, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Or put simply, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, you guys are, you guys are blowing it. And it's in this context, this is the context, that we receive the, the wonderful verses that we use almost every month to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Paul's rebuked them for their abuses, and then he gives them and us a reminder of the first Lord's Supper. In verses 23 through 26, we read these familiar verses. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's method for correcting the abuse is to remind the church of the first Lord's Supper, uh, which has come to be known as the Last Supper where Jesus himself instituted this sacred practice. And it's here we find the essence of the Lord's Supper. In four verses, Paul reminds us of how it all started, what its original purpose was. Paul received uh, the account as part of church. Paul wasn't there. He wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. He had received this account as part of 
church tradition and had faithfully passed it along. But because of their abuse, he must now remind the Corinthians again. This is not a, something that they hadn't heard before. He's, this is a reminder. And the first thing he points out is the Lord's Supper began on Passover. Jesus, at the Last Supper, on the night when he was betrayed, so he's taking us back, establishes the Lord's Supper. Now the church knew that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he and his disciples had gathered in the upper room to celebrate the Passover meal. This meal looked back at God's deliverance of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. The end of Genesis records that the children of Israel had gone down into Egypt to seek safety from a, from a famine in their land. But Exodus opens with the fact that the Egyptians had forced Israel into slavery. The slavery lasted 400 years until God sent Moses to Pharaoh to demand the release of his people. Repeatedly, Pharaoh refused to let God's people go, and God in turn sent ten plagues against Egypt. This familiar, familiar story. Read the book, seen the movie, right? The tenth plague was the angel of death. The angel of death visited every home in Egypt and killed every firstborn male. Unless the angel found the blood of a lamb sprinkled on the top and the sides of the doorposts. In that case, the angel would pass over the home. So the Passover meal celebrated the fact that the angel passed over the homes of the children of Israel. And that through this final plague, God had delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. After that, the Pharaoh relented and let them go. He had a change of heart and chased them down, but that's a different story. Passover represents salvation from death and deliverance from slavery. Let me say that again. Passover represents salvation from death, the angel, and deliverance from slavery. And so it's more than appropriate that the Lord's Supper began on Passover because the Lord's Supper is also a celebration of salvation from death and deliverance from slavery. The children of Israel were saved from the angel of death and delivered from slavery in Egypt because they took the blood of an innocent lamb and put it on their doorposts. Some have even pointed out that, that blood, they put the blood on the top of the doorpost, on the right, the right, that's my right, and the left. And some have pointed out that that could even form like a cross. And we're saved from eternal death and delivered from the slavery to sin because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who died on the cross and whose blood covers our sins. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So first, the Lord's Supper began on Passover. Remember that. Remember what took place. Remember what it symbolizes. This is the point. It reminds us of what Jesus on the cross did to save us from death and deliver us from slavery to sin. And second, we're reminded that the Lord's Supper is about God's provision. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. He willingly gave himself to be sacrificed for you and me. He was not forced. He was not coerced. He knew he faced the wrath of God, and yet he willingly went to the cross. 
His death on the cross for our sins is the greatest gift ever given. When He took our sin upon Himself, when He experienced personally the wrath of God for the sins of all humanity, when He, in emotional and physical agony from the cross, cried out, Father, why have You forsaken Me? This was God's provision. This was God's gift for all who would put their trust in Him. This is my body, which is for you. Remember what God did for you on the cross. Jesus then goes on to say, do this. Take this. Participate in the Lord's Supper, in communion, in remembrance of me. Remember God's provision for you. Remember the sacrifice made for you. Remember God's greatest gift for you. Because of this gift, you can be saved from eternal death and delivered from slavery to sin. Because of this gift, your past, your sins, past, present, and future can be forgiven. You can be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be declared righteous, sinless before God. And therefore, because of this gift, remember that you can be reconciled to God. Don't forget that that before the gift was given, we, because of our sin, had no hope of relationship with God. uh, But God's gift of of His Son, Jesus Christ, provides reconciliation, relationship with God for those who trust in Him. We enter into relationship with a living God. I remember when this uh, relational aspect of communion became clear to me. I'd gone many years uh, as a Christian thinking of communion only as a, a remembrance of Christ's death, and it certainly is that. For me, though, it was often a sad time of reflection, but that changed when I learned uh, uh, some Thai. For those that don't know, I was a missionary in Thailand for a number of years, and learning a second language, if you've ever done that, often causes you to think about things in a new way. Because there are words like communion, which you really don't think about much in your own language. You don't think about their actual meaning, you just think about the act uh, these words represent. So the word communion was, to me, just a noun that represented what we do with bread and juice once a month at church. But when you hear the word translated into a new language and you have to think about it, it's like hearing it for the first time. I believe I've shared this before, but I'll do it again. The phrase for communion in Thai is piti maha sanit. Can we, you say that with me? Piti maha sanit. Piti means ceremony. Ma means come. Ha means seek. And sanit means closeness. Piti maha sanit, a ceremony to come and seek closeness. Communion. Because of God's provision in Christ, we can come seek closeness with God. We can commune with God. Communion means we are not only saved from eternal death, we are not only delivered from slavery to sin, but praise the Lord, we we can have relationship with the living God. So second, the Lord's Supper is about remembering God's provision and what it means for us today. 
He saved us from our sin. And He saved us to relationship with Himself. Remember that. And third, we are reminded that the Lord's Supper points to the new covenant. Again, Genesis and Exodus record that God established a covenant with Israel. It was a covenant in which he acted on their behalf. He said, I will be your God. I am your God, and I will do these things for you. And as such, he asked for, in fact, he demanded uh, their obedience, the obedience of his people. And when Christ said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he was saying that, that by his death on the cross, he is establishing a new covenant with those uh, both Jew and Gentile, who would trust in Him. So what is this new covenant? Now in our day, we're more familiar with the word contract uh, than the word covenant, but they're similar. Often when you buy or sell a house, you borrow money, you take a job, we're asked to sign a contract. This means that we enter into an agreement according to the terms of the contract, right? Paul's reminder to his readers is that they have entered a covenant a new covenant with God through Jesus Christ. In the new covenant, Christ would provide salvation and eternal, uh, from eternal death. Christ would provide forgiveness and deliverance from your sins. Christ would provide a new relationship with God. Christ would provide the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we enter into this covenant, the covenant in His blood, by faith, by putting our trust in His finished work on the cross, to cover our sins. And one very important thing to remember about entering into this covenant, when you, by faith, enter the new covenant, you are no longer your own. You do not belong to yourself. Now, in some respects, you never belong to yourself. You're not the creator of you. But in a new way, you are not your own. As Paul made clear earlier in this very same letter, five chapters earlier, chapter 6, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. The price was the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So glorify God in your body. When we on Communion Sunday remember Christ's sacrificial death, we're also remembering that if, if we are to receive the benefits of that death, then we must enter into the new covenant with Him. A covenant where Jesus gives us salvation, eternal life, deliverance from sin, relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, purpose, satisfaction, joy, I could go on. And we give Him in return our very lives. For, for our good. It's not like... Uh, I give it to him and I say, bummer. It's I give it to him and I say, and, and you do with it as you will because you know much more about what, what, what gives me joy and satisfaction and purpose than I do. You enter a covenant in which you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. So third, remember the Lord's Supper points to the new covenant. And fourth, we're to remember that the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. Christ had said to them uh, that every time they took communion, they proclaimed the Lord's death till He comes. This is often the, like, this, this needs a little more explanation. And so every Sunday, it's like, I feel like I should explain this, but, and we often don't have time, so we'll do it now. And everybody's got to remember this for the rest of the year. 
The Lord's Supper is more than just an internal church thing. It's more than just a reminder to believers of what Jesus accomplished. It's also a proclamation, certainly to one another, but also to the world that Jesus Christ died for them as well. Well-known pastor Lloyd Ogilvie shares a story that illustrates this point. I'll share it with you. He writes, One Sunday night, I looked to the back of the sanctuary and saw a very large number of visitors who had come to the service from the International Seamen's Center located in the ship channel. Ships from all over the world docked there, and I realized that those who were visiting came from many different countries and in all probability were very limited in their understanding of English. To make matters worse, it was the night on which a large part of the service was devoted to observing the Lord's Supper. Consequently, I was very surprised later when I received a letter from the chaplain who had brought them telling me how very meaningful the service had been to them. In the letter, he told how their limited English had made it hard for them to understand my sermon, but that they were able to grasp clearly the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. As Christ had anticipated, they had followed the sermon with their eyes. In the Lord's Supper, Christ gave the church another way of proclaiming the gospel. It's a picture, a way for the eyes to see as well as the ears to hear. The Lord's Supper pictures uh, the very heart of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came into this world and his body was broken and his blood was shed that the world might come to relationship with God. So application, it's okay to bring your unsaved friends, people who are interested to church, even on Communion Sunday. Let them see the picture of what Jesus did for them. And then have a conversation with them about the gospel. Amen? Now, so far we've seen that the church in Corinth was abusing the Lord's Supper. And to help correct their abuses, Paul reminds them of the first Lord's Supper. He says that the Lord's Supper began at Passover, the night Jesus was betrayed. The Lord's Supper is about God's provision, the gift of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper points to the, the new covenant that we enter into by faith. And the Lord's Supper is a proclamation, both within the church and to the world. Then Paul brings it together. In verses 27 through 34, he applies the reminders of the Lord's Supper to the abuses being practiced in the church. And in so doing, he intertwines both consequences and commands. He gives the consequences of continuing to abuse the Lord's Supper. If you want to keep doing this, this is what's going to happen. And commands to help stop those abuses. He begins with consequence one, which is guilt. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Does it mean that those who do not uh, live perfect, sin-free lives should not participate? No, because there's only been one who's lived a perfect, sin-free life and it's not any of us. Sorry. In fact, the Lord's Supper is a continuing reminder that through the death of 
Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for the imperfect sinner, for you and for me. So what does it mean to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? Well, I think it means that you come to the Lord's table, you partake of the body and the blood of Christ with sin residing in your heart. For the Corinthians, I mean, that's what he's pointing back to, their sin was division and drunkenness and selfishness, among other things. But really, it could be any, any known sin. If you come to the Lord's table with sin in your heart, unconfessed sin, knowing that you've just participated this past week in this ter- horrific act, this act of sin, or this maybe less than horrific act, it's just a, a violation of God's Word, You're making a mockery of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. We are, in effect, uh, sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. We are guilty before the Lord. We're saying that holding on to this sin, uh, not confessing it or planning to do it again, not repenting from it, we're saying that our sin is more important than remembering what Jesus' death did for me. He died that I might be freed from sin. Do you get that? He died that you and I might be freed from sin, that we might not be guilty before the Lord, but I'm choosing to hold on to it. I'm choosing to continue to live in it. It's not that I, that I sinned last week. That's not the point, although we should confess those always. It's the point that I'm planning to continue to live in this sinful way. And that's an insult to the Lord. That's an unworthy manner. And the consequence is guilt before the Lord, which which means we continue in broken relationship with God. When we sin and hold on to it, our relationship with God is broken. Uh, Our fellowship with God is broken. Just like when you uh, violate the rules in your home when when you're still a child, a teenager, There's a relationship break with your parents until there's forgiveness, until there's confession and forgiveness. We come to communion with this broken relationship because of our stubborn sinfulness. If we do that, we're unable to experience communion with God. You see what I'm saying? We come to communion and we can't experience communion because we're holding on to the sin in our lives. That's what I believe it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. And what's the remedy for this? Paul tells us in the next verse where we find the first command, command one, examine yourself. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. As you come to the Lord's table, you ought to examine yourself. The examined life, if you will. Examine your life. Does your recent activity reflect what you're remembering? Do these things go together? That you're partaking of the body and the blood of Christ and how you're living? Do your abuses in Corinth, your divisions, your unwillingness to share, your drunkenness, your selfishness, your sinfulness, do these things truly reflect the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ? Do they truly reflect what you've received from Christ? What is your attitude as you come to the table? Are you in right relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? 
Because uh, I've focused on communion with God, but communion also represents the communion of the body of Christ as well. Are there divisions in the church that you have something to do with? Do you have unconfessed sin in your life? Paul repeats this same idea down in verses 31 and 32. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. If you judge, if you examine yourself, then you won't have to come under the judgment of God. Good, good move. You won't have to face the discipline of God. You won't have to be condemned with the world. The point is, either examine, judge your life, or the Lord will do it for you. And He will bring you under discipline. And it won't be a happy day for you. And just to be clear, it's not enough to just examine or judge your life. Implied in the examination is repentance and confession. As you take stock of your life, as God reveals your sin, then you must take it to Him. You must confess it and ask Him for the ability to repent, to change. And we'll talk more about that shortly. So Paul says, examine and judge yourself. Then he gives the, the consequences if you don't. Consequence two, judgment. Sort of said it already, he's going to say it again. If you don't examine yourself then as we said, God will do it for you. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul says that judgment will come to those who eat and drink, partake, partake of the Lord's Supper, without discerning the body. We'll talk about what it means to discern the body in a minute. But first, Paul gives a sample of the judgment for not doing it, for not discerning the body. He says, that is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Well, that's a bummer. Paul's not talking about eternal judgment here. He's not talking about losing your salvation. This is all in the context of the church. If you fail to discern the body, he's talking about judgment or consequences in this life. And he says that the judgment includes actual physical consequences. Weakness, illness, even death. We don't really think about that much. And I'm not talking about, you know, health and wealth gospel. If you do this, then you'll always be healthy and wealthy. That's not the point. The point is right here. What Paul is saying, in our worldview, we don't really relate physical problems with spiritual reality. But Paul says they're related. Whether he's saying that God causes these physical problems or they're a natural result of, of, of holding on to your sin, not recognizing the body of the Lord, I can't say. But I would say that when, when we are weak, when we're sick, when we're ill, uh, we, might not want, we might not want to only get a physical examination but we might want to get a spiritual examination as well. We can't disregard the spiritual aspect of our life. Are we walking in relationship with God? And that's not to say if you're walking in relationship with God, you'll always be healthy. But it is to say that if you're not walking in relationship with God, it might contribute to your unhealthiness. Because participating in 
and holding on to our sin can have a definite impact on our physical bodies, right? So this judgment that Paul talks about can be avoided by discerning the body. Now, what does that mean? That takes us to the second command. Discerning the body, I believe, means seeing the presence of Christ. That's the second command, to see the Christ's presence. This command is applied in verse 29. When you come to the Lord's table, when you eat and drink, you must discern the body. That word discern means to judge or to see clearly, to recognize the truth of, the reality of. When you come to communion, you must truly see, recognize, discern the body. What body? The body represented by the bread. The body of Christ. And we must recognize not only that the bread represents the body, the broken body of Jesus, but that, that, that we see, we recognize that Jesus Christ is truly present among us. That when we celebrate communion, it's more than a symbolic remembrance of a past event. It's also a recognition of present reality. As the Lord, at, the, at the Lord's Supper, we, rec, we need to recognize the present reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. My good friend, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, puts it this way. Oh friend, when you observe the Lord's Supper, He is present. Yes, He is. This is not just a symbol. It means you must recognize the body of Christ. You have bread in your mouth, but you have Christ in your heart. May God help us to to so come to the table that Jesus Christ will be a reality to us. God, forgive us for making it a dead formal ritual. This isn't just another meal. This isn't just something we do once a month. We must recognize the significance of what Christ did for you and me. We must recognize the significance of His death for our sins. We must recognize that Christ is present among us. That He has come to commune with us. So, command two see Christ's presence. And Paul gives one final command. Third command, change your behavior. We mentioned this already. Implied in examining or judging our lives is change, repentance, confession. But now Paul spells it out for the Corinthians. So then, my brothers, when you come uh, together to eat, this is like his conclusion after all I've said, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Those things uh, uh, you're you're doing to abuse the Lord's Supper, uh, knock it off. Do something different. Don't create division. Wait for one another. Care for one another. Don't try to fill your stomach at the love feast. If you're hungry, eat at home. I really appreciate this Paul's down-to-earth practical suggestion for dealing with their sin. Yes, there needs to be spiritual examination. Yes, there needs to be confession and repentance from the heart. Yes, the power for change in our lives comes from the the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there comes a point when you just have to say, knock it off. Quit behaving like a doofus. That's That's a word I looked it up. No, I didn't really. I don't know. 
Find a better, more practical way to live your life that won't lead to these sins. Eat before you get to church. And this can be applied to so many areas of our lives. I'll apply it to a few. Uh, If you're wasting time in front of a screen, Paul would say, then put it down or don't even pick it up. If you get irritated when you're hungry, Paul would say, then eat something and remember, hunger is not an excuse to treat people badly. Maybe you struggle to spend time in God's Word and prayer. Paul would say, then set aside a specific time every day, get someone to hold you accountable, and just do it. Because of Christ's death on the cross, because of the power He provides through the Holy Spirit, you can change your behavior because of the power He provides. Okay, This isn't a self-help course. This is a looking to the power that you've been given in Christ Jesus. And, and when you change your behavior, you won't, I won't be sinless, but we'll be walking that path of sinning less. So as, as we examine our lives, we should not only confess and repent of our sin, but where necessary, change our behavior. Okay? So that's the message on the Lord's Supper. Now, as we come to our time of communion... As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's time for immediate practical application. I want us to take a few minutes to reflect on what Paul has said. Let's take a few minutes to prepare our hearts with the commands. I think the commands sort of summarize uh, what Paul is giving to us. We're going to have a time shortly of silent prayer, and I want us to remember three, the three commands. First, We must examine ourselves. Maybe you've even begun to do that as as you've heard these words. Maybe you've begun to think about your past week, your past month, even the past year. We must confess our sins and receive forgiveness based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And second, uh, in this time, we are to see the presence of Christ. He's present among us as we remember His sacrifice. And it's because of His sacrifice that we can come into His presence. He's present among us, and we can come into His presence because of what we're celebrating here today. And finally, let's commit to change our behavior. As you examine your life, as you confess your sin, as you ask for forgiveness, commit to the Lord that you will make practical changes. And maybe this is a New Year thing, I don't, you know... Commit to the Lord today. I know it's January 2nd, but that's okay. That you can make some practical changes. Changes that will help you to avoid the sin that so easily besets you. So with what we've heard today, and with those three commands in mind, let's enter into a time of silent prayer. A time of personal communion with the Lord.